Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for joining us today on this very spooky last week of May. (laughs) How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, Yeah, like it's been, it's been, we we had uh, a lot of weekend recently. Uh, with a lot of emotional roller coaster ups and downs. Um, but I think I'm doing really good. How about yourself? I am also doing all right. My hair is a little frazzled from that roller coaster ride, but doing all right. Mm. Plus, we know what has been selected by our patrons for this month's bonus episode it is Scooby Doo on Zombie Island. Oh boy, guys. Oh boy. I'm so excited. This is like the best one. No. Of the the string of 90s Scooby-Doo movies, this is the best one. Okay. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Are you not a uh, Scooby-Doo 90s movie connoisseur like the, I am? The, the 90s like direct-to-video or like maybe they were direct-to-cartoon network like movies for Scooby-Doo are not... Not my favorite representation of the brand, but we'll get into it. We'll get into it. So stay tuned for that coming uh, later this week. It comes out the last Saturday of the month. Ben, what are we watching this week? This week, Sarah, we are watching My World Dies Screaming, a.k.a. Terror in the Haunted House. One of these titles is not like the other. Right. Uh, From 1958... Uh, although you might also see it said to be from 1961. I will address that later. <laughs> and this film is directed by Harold Daniels. Cool. Um, I am pretty interested in this movie. Uh, well, at least one of those titles. I am I am hoping it turns out to be good. But um, <laughs> the reviews, the contemporary reviews are not promising. Well, we'll see. Exactly. So this film comes to us from Halco International Pictures, uh, the production company used by Joy Newton Hauk, Ron Ormond, and J. Francis White to produce low-budget pictures for their various theater chains. So Hauk, Ormond, White, How, Halco. Oh, it, I, when you're just hearing it... It it took me a minute. Sure. I'm sure if I saw it written, it would not have taken me as long as it did. We've already seen uh, at least one Halco film for the podcast. Okay. Uh, It was Mesa of Lost Women. Oh, no. And other pictures they've released include Ed Wood's Jailbait. Oh, no. Roger Corman's Carnival Rock. The sci-fi film The Brain from Planet Arouse. Excuse me. It, it, it's it's to be oh fair. It might be it might be pronounced Arouse in the movie, but it is spelled A R O U S. Uh, and then they've also released the weird western Teenage Monster. I'm speechless after that Arouse title. My God, my God. So in November of 1957, uh, writer Robert S. Dennis 
sold the story to My World Dies Screaming to producer William S. Edwards. Dennis was primarily a television writer, while Edwards, I wish I could have found more information about him, because what I found said that, like, Dennis had sold the rights to him, and then Edwards had contracted uh, the developers of this film process called the Precon process to make the film in the pre-con process, but the, the script for the movie like had existed before the idea of doing this. Um, and then Edwards for, you know, marketing purposes, renamed the pre-con process psychorama. Yes. Uh, which is a gimmick production technique whereby single frame images are inserted into a movie to try and evoke a subliminal response. The reason why I wish I could find out more about Edwards is while the stuff I read said that he like, contracted out for this process to use it for this movie um only two films would ever be made in psychorama this and a crime drama called a date with death um which was also produced by edwards released by Howco, and had the same director and star as this movie the thing is edwards only produced these two movies <laughs> so i i really wish i knew more about like what his relationship was with the developers of psychorama like what did he have a vested stake in the company? Like, what was the deal here? He's just trying to get his own company off the ground. <laughs> right now. Um, I briefly explained how psychorama worked. Um, and I'm pretty sure like most of our audience would be familiar with the idea of subliminal messages because it's become kind of like very widespread in terms of pop culture, not like in terms of their use, but in terms of like, the concept being explained to people. I think most people have a good idea, but for those people who don't, um, and also just to like maybe give a better understanding of, you know, what it is, what it's supposed to be. Um, why don't you educate us about subliminal messages, Sarah? Um, yes. Well, welcome class. Come sit down in our seminar on subliminal messaging. Um, psychorama has been kind of explained. The goal is to, flash images in the film so fast that your conscious mind doesn't register them, but your subconscious mind does. And this kind of works for films because of the way that like film works, where it's like 24 images in a second. So you could like replace like one of those mm -hmm. with something else. And this led me down a rabbit hole of where subliminal messaging came from. Right. Who had the idea first? Uh, a guy named James Vicari. Vickery? I'm going to go with Vicari. Um, he was a market researcher. Okay. And he claimed to do an experiment uh, at a movie theater where he would have um, images that would say, Thirsty? Drink Coca-Cola. Or, hungry? Get popcorn. Uh, playing at this movie theater, interspersed with like a standard movie. Going Got out. it. This experiment and his results came out in 1957. Okay. So right in time for a movie producer to, you know, catch this eye. Okay. And according to Vicari, popcorn sales rose by nearly 60%. 
when this experiment went on. Um, drink sales similarly rose, um, probably around, uh, it was more closer to 30%. So the idea here being that like, you're putting in advertisements that people don't know are there, but unconsciously, subconsciously, it's getting them to go buy the thing. Yes. Now, Vicari and others could not replicate this experiment beyond what he claimed he had achieved. Mm. Um, and later in his life, um, in like the 1970s, he admitted that the experiment never happened and was really just a way to boost his standing as a market researcher. Sure, yeah, everyone would be like, oh shit, we should get that guy, the guy who came up with subliminal messaging. Yes. This clearly caused enough of a stir that people took notice. When My Roll Dice Screaming finished um, being produced and filmed, two versions were shown to the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, and the National Association of Broadcasters, the NAB. One version had these messages in a subliminal manner, and then the other had the images extended, so you would be able to see, ah, that's what the image is being shown. Mm -hmm. This is very early in the process of, like, understanding what subliminal messaging is. Right. This was probably for the purpose of, like, you know, educating the FCC and NAB on what this is, what it looks like. Exactly. So the NAB got a little concerned about the implications of subliminal messaging and the idea that you could control someone's mind mm. in, like, a slippery slope kind of way through advertising, basically. So they updated their television code to prohibit TV stations using any kind of subliminal messaging, um, specifically as it applied to advertising. ABC, CBS, and NBC followed suit, but there's actually no government mandate in the States about not allowing subliminal messaging at all. Right, yeah, like the NAB is sort of like the motion picture association for movies like it's they have a voluntary you know um censorship code the same way the production code was so yeah it's just voluntary yeah they were like oh shit this could go bad let's just get ahead of this mm -hmm. now in 1962 the united kingdom government would ban subliminal messaging because of a concern on the effect that this would have on children's minds specifically sure, sure someone please think of the children exactly the british would and it's interesting that we see this response to subliminal messaging when like the research on it is very very early and the 70s saw an increased fear of mm -hmm. subliminal messaging particularly you know you think of um i think it's stairway to heaven As the rumor of like if you play it backwards you hear like satanic messaging sure And then, of course, it's also used in, like, The Exorcist. 
1973. So, you know, it's, it's becoming like something to be scared of. All of the research that's going on at this time and into the 80s is like, is this real? And to what extent is it real? Um, in the sense of like, to identify if subliminal messaging is actually perceived. Um, and if so, how? Uh, there's a, a study in, I think it's 1983, that is investigating like the exposure effect. So like, literally, does A lead to B? Or is it just happenstance that someone right. gets thirsty? Even now, by and large, the science is still pretty, you know, shrug. In 2002, there was a study that put in subliminal messaging of like, you're thirsty in an episode of The Simpsons to like um, a test group and a control group. 27% of the test group uh, reported being thirsty after that episode. And that, among other studies, showed that there is some kind of causation going on. Mm -hmm. A 2006 study identified that uh, it's kind of goal-oriented. Mm. So it's not like um, I see this and I'm like, yes, I'm going to go and drink Coca-Cola specifically. Um, but it's more if I am thirsty, I'm going to choose a Coca-Cola. Which, to be honest, is true of all advertising. Um, it's very, very <laughs> like uncommon that advertising is going to make you go like, oh, I want product X. Um, what it's going to do is the next time you need a product in that purpose, you'll think of the one you saw advertising for because you need to buy something and you're like, oh, yeah, that's the one I've heard of. Yeah. Or at least um, in the case of like the marketing that I do for work, it's very much a uh, they'll think of our solutions when they were going to go purchase. Yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You can't make people do anything they weren't already going to do. Yeah. In 2016, a study identified that this kind of causation lasts for at most 25 minutes. Mm. After that, your ship has sailed in the sense of like, oh, yes, I will purposefully drink this particular brand of drink when I am thirsty. Right. Uh, so it's very, no one's going to be controlling your minds. There are studies showing that there is something there. Mm. Um, and I think what's interesting is like, yes, you don't register whatever is being shown on screen, but people often report feeling it. Yeah. And that's the idea, right? The exactly. idea behind it is that you'll, you'll feel the thing. Honestly, the closest thing I can think of to subliminal messaging that's real is like sub bass frequencies where you can play like frequencies that human ears can't hear, but you can make people like feel scared or disturbed with these like sub bass frequencies that they don't actually hear. Yeah. Um, so it seems like a lot of research going on right now is trying to determine how our monkey brains process mm. this subliminal messaging and like, how is it that like we don't perceive it, but we feel it. Now, my understanding is in this film, my world dies screaming, uh, the images that they use are to inspire a feeling yes. and an emotion. Um, so they will show an image of a skull to invoke terror, a snake to invoke hate, a pair of hearts to invoke love and then the word blood to invoke fear. And they would also use the same kind of 
iconography in 1959's A Date with Death. But yeah, other than that, like the only other times that it seems subliminal messaging was explicitly used in like film would be 1973's The Exorcist and then quite blatantly 1999's Fight Club. So the thing about subliminal messaging is every example that you can think of, um, you the listener, is not subliminal messaging. It's it's supraliminal messaging. Because, because if you notice it, it's not, not subliminal. Exactly. Yeah. So like people think of the exorcist, but like those little flashes of the demon face, you see those. Yeah. The, I think the soundtrack even stings when they come up. Um, yeah. And that's the thing about Fight Club as well, because um, Tyler Durden stitches in the images. I think it's pornography he mm-hmm. puts in. But to convey that in the film... As someone's watching it, they also include the soundtrack of the pornography film. Yes. And that, you know, all, all of these studies are pretty focused on visual rather than sound, but also the way that blip would come out through sound, you would not hear it as a moan. It would sound like static. Yeah. If you had it actually short enough. Exactly. That's um, what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Like the subliminal stuff in Fight Club is not subliminal. You see it. Um, it's blinking, you miss it, but that's not the same thing. Same with the exorcist stuff. You see it if you're watching the damn movie. If you're noticing stuff, it's not subliminal. Um, it's hilarious that there was this such this fear of this like subliminal messaging, like, oh, they're gonna mind control our kids through the music and stuff, which was all part of this like larger like generation gap fear of like, I don't understand my kids or the music they're listening to. And that kind of fed then into like the satanic panic and like, mm-hmm. oh, is D D teaching our kids how to do witchcraft and stuff? And it's And even in like the fifties and sixties with like the enforcement of the comics code authority and mm-hmm. like what what are comics doing to our kids yeah. like very much a fear of like protect the children as you said and i think you know the thing about all these things is if you just look at them you'll find out that it's not there right like read me a D book and try to summon a demon i'll wait you know what i mean <laughs> or with subliminal messaging or um you mentioned like backmasking which is sort of the audio version of like you put in a backwards message and supposedly that'll like fucking mind control you if you hear it and it's like i can't understand backwards speech when i know it's there yeah. much less and also the difficulty of like recording lyrics that would read as like you know, the lyrics to Stairway to Heaven frontwards, but like summoning the devil backwards, like that's ridiculously impossible to do. Um, a lot of these things come from, you know, when people say like, oh, I heard a hidden message in this, that, or the other thing. It's because they saw the rumor on the internet first, listened to the thing, and it's like, oh yeah, I can hear that because you've already been told that it's there. Um, when you look at music that actually has backwards messaging in it for one thing you can tell it's there when you listen to it frontwards like pink floyd does this a bunch and you'll hear someone being like and then like you'll play it backwards and it'll always be some silly bullshit like congratulations you found the secret message because like (laughs) the stuff where they think it's satanic is just when you play stuff backwards it sounds weird it's like and it's like yeah that's just because sounds sound weird when you play them backwards it's not intentional yeah the thing is is like i can see why subliminal messaging would seem like a slam dunk for an advertiser because it's like you need to have ads 
but nobody wants to watch ads. And so it's like, well, what if we could just put them in without people noticing? Of course, this is coming early enough that like they're actually trying to really do actual subliminal messaging here. They think that it works because as I said, every instance you've ever heard about is not subliminal. It's right there. Mm -hmm. Um, Subliminal messaging is like a, like just like one of those urban myths that's repeated so often that people just sort of accept it as true. Now it's like, oh yeah, that's totally a thing that works. And it's like, it never really was a thing. Like it's a thing a dude made up and people got so concerned about a thing a dude made up. They made rules against the thing the dude made up and that made people paranoid about it being everywhere. But I like, yes, James Vicari absolutely made this up. But there is still credence to it, you know, like the these studies are showing that like there is something to it. But as you also pointed out when I was going through the studies, that's also just advertising mm-hmm. and marketing. And, you know, to bring it back to product placement, product placement, just like subliminal messaging, defeats its own point if you start noticing it. Yeah. Like, I think that's one of the reasons why people got like very savvy to product placement. The reason product placement is supposed to work is you don't notice it like Products exist in the real world. So your brain isn't going to be like, oh, that's weird that he's drinking a Coke in this movie. Cause like, what else is he going to drink? Like, oh, Cheerios. Yeah, that's a cereal. He's having breakfast. Like, that's normal. It's when you get to the Fantastic Four and there's a product logo in every frame of the movie and you notice it that it stops working because people don't like being advertised to. Yeah. I, I will forever love. The moment in the Truman Show mm. when um, his wife like turns to quote unquote the camera and is like, oh, yeah, we love using this soap. And Truman's like, what are you doing? Yeah. Who are you talking to? I've never really believed in subliminal messaging. Again, mostly because like every instance that you ever hear talked about is not subliminal. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you, you've basically covered a lot of what I was going to cover for like how it's used in this movie. Oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. I didn't mean to steal your thunder. There's just like not much else about this movie in terms of its production other than the Psychorama <laughs> stuff. Hey, when does that movie where like the dude puts on the, the glasses and then he sees like the aliens and like the they words, live. Okay, they live. What, what year is that? That's like 1987, I think. Okay. Because I had the thought of, um, I wonder if that... Is kind of spurring off of subliminal messaging. Yeah, I think so. It's it's definitely one of those things where it's like this is based on the idea of subliminal messaging. The thing is, is like people give subliminal messaging like too much credit. It's like this idea, like oh yeah, the government's putting in hidden messages to tell you to do things, and it's like they don't need to. There are just ads for the U.S. military on TV. There's just ads for products on TV, and they work even though you don't think they are Mm -hmm. because you go out and you buy those products. People do those things like advertising works. Um, and it doesn't need to be clever or, or weird or like nefarious. nefarious. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So it seems like Edwards bought the script here with the intention of doing it as a psychorama movie because he only ever made two movies and they were both psychorama movies, but it was definitely like a gimmick thing. And it is very interesting to me that like this whole thing happened with a turnaround so fast that this guy advertises like I figured this out. Edwards goes, oh, that'd be cool to put in a movie. And then to demonstrate how it works, he shows it to the FCC 
And then like the FCC and the NAB like turn around and the NAB is like, yeah, we probably shouldn't allow this. So I mentioned A Date with Death, uh, which is the other Psychorama movie. So these two movies share William S. Edwards as producer. Um, they also were both released by Howco. Uh, they were also both directed by Harold Daniels, who was a B-movie director who had transitioned into television in the 1950s. And that's where Edwards found him uh, for this movie. And he did a few more movies and then went back to TV. Um the two Psychorama movies also star the same lead actor, uh, Gerald Moore, who was born in Manhattan in 1914. Um, and he was like a prep school kid who attended Columbia University to become a doctor. And while he was in university, he uh, had to go to the hospital for appendicitis. And while he was um, recovering from the surgery, he was scouted by a radio producer who was also recovering because Moore <laughs> has this very deep baritone voice. And the radio guy was like, that would be perfect for radio. And so Moore basically like abandoned becoming a doctor to go be a radio star. Um, wow. Dude was on all kinds of radio all the time. He was the voice of Philip Marlowe. Um, he was the voice of Archie Goodwin on the Nero Wolf uh, radio show. He was an announcer in like commercials and he was a narrator on things um voice was just everywhere he sort of parlayed that in the late 1930s into being in films and then starting in the 1950s he became a very prolific television guest star um this is a guy who if you don't recognize his face you'll probably recognize his voice um because he was a narrator for movies he wasn't in he did tons of cartoons in the 60s whatever and if you do recognize his face it's he's a he's a that guy this is a quintessential that guy. His co-star is actress Kathy O'Donnell, who was born Anne Steely in uh, Alabama in 1923. And she had a career as a stenographer that she abandoned to become an actress after seeing the film Wuthering Heights in 1939. <laughs> uh, she went to Hollywood and was scouted by the agent of Samuel Goldwyn, who ironically uh, produced Wuthering Heights. And Samuel Goldwyn signed her to a contract despite her heavy southern accent and he sent her off to acting and diction lessons she changed her name uh to kathy yeah because of wuthering heights and then she changed her last name to o'donnell um because goldwyn's wife thought that people liked actresses with irish last names and her first major on-screen role uh, was as the character Wilma in 1946's The Best Years of Our Lives. Um, that's the romantic interest of the character Homer Parrish, um, who's the character in that film who um, has the prosthetic arms. Um, she also appeared in The Amazing Mr. X in 1948. Um, and other notable film appearances of hers include They Live by Night in 1948 and Ben-Hur in 1959, where she plays Ben-Hur's sister. In the 1960s, she transitioned to television, and unfortunately, she died in 1970 of a cerebral hemorrhage brought on by cancer. Oh, dear. So, yeah, uh, you mentioned the screening of My World Dies Screaming to the FCC and the NAB, um, and you mentioned that there were two versions of the film created for that screening, uh, one with the subliminal messages and one with, like, exaggerated supraliminal messages that your naked eye could see. So you, you talked about what the subliminal messages in the film were. This whole use of Psychorama as a gimmick achieved its goal in terms of like getting the film marketing attention. You know, it got them this meeting with 
these two like advisory boards. Um, Life Magazine did a story on the movie. Well, Life Magazine did a story on subliminal messaging that talked about the movie. Mm -hmm. Same with the motion picture Herald, which had a fun little bit in its article talking about the idea that like the dream of like an exhibitor would be a movie that has like alternating frames between a picture and B picture. So your conscious mind is watching a picture. Your subconscious mind is watching B picture and the theater owner can charge you a ticket for two movies and then still show them in the time slot of one movie so that he can make more money. That was a joke. That was a joke in the motion picture Herald article. Like I see what you're doing here. Like this is the final goal. It was, it was a, a joke. Yeah. In the original version of My World Dies Screaming, uh, there was a prologue featuring actor Gerald Moore explaining what Psychorama is, and then an epilogue after the movie demonstrating how it worked. And that sort of brings up a very interesting point to me as well, which is how subliminal are subliminal messages and how effective are they when you tell people they're in there ahead of time? Yeah, so there's um, another study about this. Uh, you know those images where, like, if you squint, uh, it's like, oh, that's an old woman. And then if you don't squint, it's like a rabbit. Right, optical illusions. <laughs> that's the word. Um, so in this study, they took two separate groups. One, they said, okay, this image shows um, a clown with a seal. And then this other group was told that it's a ball with like a fancy lady and a dude with a sword. And when they went to go look at this image, they saw exactly what they were told was going to be there. And they Mm -hmm. were told like, you know, this is what it is, but just like, let your mind absorb it. Just like perceive, don't look. Right. And they saw what they were told was going to be there. Uh, So you're absolutely right that someone watching this movie, regardless of whether it's subliminal or the supraliminal version, is going to be like, ah, there it is. There's the snake. Oh, there's blood. Right. It's worth pointing out. I I find that um, optical illusion experiment very interesting because, yeah, like you, you don't see things. Um, Let me back up. (laughs) <laughs> like if you're looking like I'm looking at you right now. Yes. I'm not actually seeing you. What I'm seeing are light rays that are bouncing off you and hitting like cones in and and rods in my eye, right? Okay. So the thing is is like your brain does the job of interpreting what does this pattern of light represent? this pattern of reflected light. Yes. Right. And so it's like when you are given that interpretation ahead of time, your brain is like primed. And so it's like, cool. That's what I'm seeing then. Cause the brain knows that's what I'm supposed to be seeing. It's giving a little crutch and your brain likes to do as little work as possible, which is why human brains are really, really good at identifying patterns because identifying patterns is how you do a lot of thinking, uh, without a lot of work. Um, and it's the same thing I said about like the back masking, where if you are told like, Hey, it's going to say Satan loves you or whatever, you're going to hear that. (laughs) Oh, good. I thought it was only Jesus who loved me. (sighs) Good. Um, yeah, that's why there's a lot of work going on about how our brains process these messages, these subliminal messages, because yeah, our brains are dumb. So my world dies screaming was released in November, 1958 on a double bill with the like, crime exploitation picture lost lonely and vicious <laughs> two great titles yeah so um you mentioned like 
the NAB updating the television code to prohibit subliminal messages. You also mentioned that they got banned in the UK. That ended up like backfiring on My World Dies Screaming. Yeah, I was curious, like, would they show the super liminal one yeah, on TV? Yeah, okay. so you, they couldn't sell the movie to TV. And back in the day, like, if you were making one of these cheapo drive through B-movies, like, your substantial afterlife for these was selling it to TV where it would get shown at, you know, midnight by, uh, you know, on Monster Chiller Horror Theater, right? And so they showed the superliminal version on TV. Um, they also uh, got rid of the prologue and epilogue of the movie because those wouldn't make sense anymore. Um, and at this time, the title was changed to the more tame, I guess, television-friendly Terror in the Haunted House. Okay. Which is a super lame title compared to My World Dies Screaming. So you mentioned that this also came out in 1961. Yeah. So when they created the superliminal version um, and did the retitling and sold it to TV, they also uh, re-released it to theaters. Um, So that's why you'll sometimes see it as like Terror in the Haunted House 1961, um, because that's when it got like a second release under this title. Um, now this version is the only version to the best of my knowledge that survives because they made the cuts, they made the edits, sold it to TV. That's how the movie is now. So that's the version that actually has been used for the film's release on like VHS and DVD. Um, the last of which was in 2003. This movie has not had a home video release in a minute, but yeah. So if like there's an opportunity for like the original restored, my World Dies Screaming version to have been released. Um, that hasn't happened yet. We got like a cheap DVD in 2003 of Terror in the Haunted House, and there has not been like an official release of this movie since then. Um, it's definitely public domain. I will note this movie is a favorite of a band that likes to do backmasking in their music. Sure. Um, this is a favorite of the band Evanescence, who have frequently used yes. samples from it <laughs> in their music. They have, yes. So, yeah, um, we'll watch the movie and see if we can pick out the Evanescence samples. (laughs) How are we watching this? Um, We're watching it on YouTube, and there's also copies on the Internet Archive. Okay. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, you can find our YouTube playlist on our website at ScreamScenePodcast.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss My World Dice Screaming slash Terror in the Haunted House from 1958, directed by Harold Daniels. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching My World Dies Screaming, a.k.a. Terror in the Haunted House from 1958, directed by Harold Daniels. Sarah, what did you think of this movie? Uh, One of those titles is a bit more accurate than the other. Neither are like super accurate. One of I would they're both justifiable in a metaphorical sense. Yes. 
Which I guess, you know, that's fair. It's a horror movie. Mm. Is it though? Um Yeah, it's it was alright. I wanted to like it more. Mm. Well, um, big surprise, possibly a huge upset. I actually really liked this movie. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Um I I thought the psychorama, uh corny gimmick it may be, um, was actually surprisingly effective at like achieving its goal in a way i don't know if like the whole subliminal thing works but i think um it it worked to do what it was supposed to do anyway i will say um none of the descriptions really of what the subliminal flashes were that like i read and that we talked about in the intro uh, are really descriptive of what's in here no it might be like the difference between the subliminal version and the supraliminal version um but quite frankly um i'm i don't think anyone's if if you know the information i gave in the intro is true nobody's seen the subliminal version since 1958 so i i think people have just been repeating incorrect information for years without like checking what these things actually are so I am just going to give a brief list okay. of all the things that pop up. So for the most part, these things actually flash like over top of the image um, rather than being like their own distinct frames. And they will flash like at different places in the frame uh, at different sizes um, to kind of create different effects. There's a few variations of them. Um, but one of the most common is an image of a balding man with like coke bottle glasses who looks basically exactly like professor hugo strange from batman comics and he has a white animal looks to me like a rat trying to crawl out of his mouth then there is a very cartoonish devil face with like it's like sticking its tongue out it looks like the kind of thing you'd see is like a decal on someone's motorcycle. <laughs> there are also only three scenes where these are used. Um, the first is the opening dream sequence. Then there's a second scene um, nearer to the middle of the film. And then there's the finale. And in the second scene, we start to get that Hugo Strange face with different captions. Um, and those captions are get ready to scream. Uh, which repeats a few times, uh, scream, <laughs> scream louder. <laughs> and then at one point in that sequence, right at like the sort of climax of that sequence, the words scream bloody murder just appear on their own, on their own frame, white words on a black background. In the final sequence, we get a different sort of cartoonish monster face that um, is like this balding monster that's sticking its tongue out and has like sharp teeth and pointed ears um and it's kind of like fat and uh (laughs) it it appears a few different times with different captions um they include prepare to die 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 and die louder (laughs) also in that final sequence there's a cartoonish skull face that has the caption die dead as opposed to you know die alive 
There is also a cobra face um, that's flashed a few times, including once in red. Mm-hmm. And it it made me raise an eyebrow because um, I have to assume these were added by the home video company that released this on VHS and DVD back in 2003. Um, but its captions say, rent Rhino videos every day. You're kidding. No, I am not. <laughs> Even the one in red? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. No. True. Oh my God. Well, I don't think that that subliminal or superliminal advertising worked because i did not feel like renting a movie afterwards right specifically a movie from rhino home video which that would be like a wild thing to just be like walking into you know blockbuster and being like hey (laughs) do you have any videos from rhino the you know cheap bargain bin video distribution company and they would say yes because we are blockbuster and therefore out of business Sure. I meant like back in the day. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, you don't really like register the images like what they are. Um, they just kind of happen. Yeah, they happen and it's kind of like a jolt when it mm. does. Uh, I definitely did notice the red mm-hmm. one though because it was suddenly color. Yeah. Slowing them down reveals them to be like super goofy. And I think that images more relevant to the lead character's repressed memories would have been like better on a creative level. Sure. Uh, like an using axe it. or something. Yeah. Because like there is this plot line in the movie of like this character's repressed memories that are struggling to come through and making those, the flashing images would have been cool. But there is something about the way that these images like flash by and intrude on the scenes that I at least did find unsettling and kind of like unnerving and i felt that that did actually help like prime the pump as it were for the scares um just because like you are just kind of like unsettled by these things you're just like whoa what was that oh whoa stop doing that stop flashing things at me and then you know a big thing comes out and scares you um so i I did think they worked in that regard they also had a secondary effect i wasn't expecting which is they like really make you pay attention to the movie because like i didn't want to like look away because i didn't want to miss any sure well how about i give the synopsis absolutely and then we can kind of dig into things a bit more Mm -hmm. so we begin with a character named sheila who is living in switzerland uh, as she attends her therapy session Now, she kind of explains uh, through some exposition that when she was seven, she was sent to a sanatorium in Switzerland from America for a pretty bad case of tuberculosis. Um, She is an orphan, so she doesn't have any ties uh, back in the United States. But about six months ago, she started having this recurring dream, and she tells the doctor about this dream, uh, where she is approaching a very old house in kind of the Florida Everglades. Um, she knows that this is the uh, house of the Tierney family, particularly because Tierney is on the mailbox, and she kind of like 
in this dream, it's like her point of view walking into the house and not even just like walking of her own volition, but being pulled into the house and pulled all the way upward towards the attic uh, with this feeling of like, I'll die if I go into the attic. Now, coincidentally, she married Philip Justin around six months ago, um, and they are planning to be heading back to the U.S., uh, where both Philip and she are from. Now, this doctor clearly uh, isn't the best because he doesn't put two and two together of like why she might be, you know, having this reoccurring dream and why it's getting a bit more intense as they get closer to when they are going back to the States. But he kind of just gives the explanation of repressed memories um, and kind of leaves it at that. Once they are back in the United States, they head down to Florida, and they arrive at the house that has been in Sheila's dreams. Uh, they meet a caretaker whose name is Jonah, who is very weird and off-putting, and Sheila basically begs Philip for them to leave uh, this house, because she's like, I can't stay here. Why are we renting this house? Like, why did you choose this place? I've been here before. Uh, like, we can't be here. To be fair... If you took me somewhere that I had only ever seen in a dream and it was like exactly the place, I would also flip the fuck out. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I would be like, well, don't you want to explore? And you'd be <laughs> like, no. And I'd be like, cool, let, let's go find a hotel down the street. Yeah. You know, Philip, uh, you know, he's like, OK, well, fine. You know, I thought maybe this would help with your your dream. But OK, cool. We'll leave. Uh, except the car seems to be disabled um like purposefully like the distributor cap distributor cap i was going to call it the detonator and i don't think that's the nope, right word that's definitely um, not so don't they, want that in your car <laughs> so that's been removed from the car so they they literally can't leave and it's implied that jonah is the one who took the distributor cap as sheila stays in the house she learns a bit more about the tyrannies from jonah um and he explains that the tyrannies we're all mad. The mad tyrannies. Um, they all kind of left the house in different ways, probably around 17 years ago. Um, after uh, there was a pretty bad murder here. Now, in, in the film, people leave and appear in rooms at the drop of a hat, including Philip kind of skulking around and Jonah just showing up in scenes. Um, yeah, and we kind of like learn exposition in like, fits and starts at like different points yes now sheila is pretty freaked out by the house but also jonah particularly so she goes looking for phil's gun in his luggage and she finds that uh engine part the distributor cap in his luggage and she's like well why would philip do this why would he lie to me then uh a man named mark snell comes to the house uh he explains that he owns the house and he hasn't rented it to anyone and then as soon as he meets philip he recognizes him and uh let's slip that uh actually philip his real last name is tierney not justin it has a very like the scene where the two of them meet has a very like um vader and obi-wan in a new hope kind of feel where it's like ah philip yes mark i'm back and fucking <laughs> sheila's just standing there being like what is going on Yes. And it's from here that Sheila starts to put two and two together that, yes, she's been here before. She and Philip actually knew each other from before when they were kids. 
and uh, they wrote like their initials on a tree because they were like seven and like 10 and like, yeah, had this like childhood romance. And Philip again explains like, yes, I'm hoping that this will cure your nightmares because, you know, facing your fears and stuff. So please let's go into the attic and your repressed memories will come through and you'll be able to move past it. And Sheila's like, no, I will literally die if I go up there. Some more exposition that we get is uh, about that murder that happened here at the Tierneys. Um, Jonah tells Sheila that Philip's grandfather was mad and knew that madness ran in their family and had been like watching for it in his two sons, uh, one of which would have been Philip's father. And because of the madness in the line, the grandfather killed the two sons and then himself. Um, Philip was, uh, you know, young, um, but he was away for school. And so he was saved from that. Mark confirms this story and convinces Sheila that Philip is actually trying to drive her mad and kill her because of like the madness that's in the tyranny line. In the midst of all of this, Jonah, who again has been skulking around, gets pushed off the top railing in the house and he dies. His neck breaks. Um, after some back and forth and narrative cul-de-sacs between Philip, Mark, and Sheila, uh, Mark leaves the house to go get the police, and Philip and Sheila come back together. Um, it's actually kind of a neat scene where Sheila has locked herself into the room, and Philip sneaks in through like the fire escape, and Sheila has the gun pointed at him, but because of her love, she can't um, pull the trigger. And Philip's like see, like, we truly love each other. We can stand against anything. Do you trust me? Cool. Let's go on up to the attic. Yeah, the middle of the movie is, like, largely defined by this kind of game of who is trustworthy, who's a good guy, Philip or Mark. Yeah, right? or Jonah. Or well. sure, or Jonah, yeah. And it's like, there are various scenes that give you the impression that, like, each one could be trying to help Sheila or trying to kill Sheila, although I think they sort of pump the gas most strongly on the idea that, like, Mark is normal and Philip is mad. Mm -hmm. So finally, Philip gets Sheila up into the attic and her buried memories come flooding back. Um, and they are focused on the night that the grandfather killed his two sons. Um, she explains that, you know, I was like seven, I was like a neighbor, um, I would always get to play in and around the house, and I left my doll up in the attic one night. So I came creeping up to grab it, and then I saw Jonah, dun-dun-dun, bringing the two sons up into the attic, killing them with an axe, and then later killing the grandfather. Now, I think it's at this moment that it shared that Jonah is Mark's dad. Yes. And that basically it was because Jonah wanted the inheritance to go to his son, who was older than Philip, um, then to the uh, two older Tierneys. Yeah. So the, the deal here was that um, Philip's aunt Lydia is Mark's mother. So he was related to the Tierneys and she kind of was like the bad girl of the family who like, you know, went and married the the caretaker no shotgun wedding yeah yeah fair um was forced to, yeah but like bad girl of the family and then it was like oh well you know that side will never inherit because they're just 
like the help or whatever. So yeah, it's this like big inheritance scheme. I will say, um, Jonah doesn't kill the grandfather. The grandfather happened to die of old age on the same day. And he just like put the bloody ax in the dead grandfather's hands. Mm -hmm. Suddenly Mark shows up in the attic and Philip's like, so now we know the truth. Uh, will you just give up all of this willingly Mark, since you like own the house and everything like it belongs to me. And Mark's like, no, I knew Jonah was going to do this and I let him and I killed him because he was going to confess. So they fight and, no one actually kills Mark. Uh, the axe gets stuck into a, a beam and Mark falls backwards onto the sharp, sharp point on the back of the axe. So he dies. And uh, then we get a final scene of Sheila and Philip kind of uh, talking with each other. And that's where we learned like, oh, yeah, Jonah was going to confess. And that's why he got killed. And see, everything's fine and wrapped up with a bow. And it's, it's all good. The end. Mm-hmm. So you kind of already talked about how you found the subliminal messaging and like the the spurts of messages of the visual images throughout. Um, I agree that they were off-putting and definitely caused a feeling of like uneasiness, I think. But for me, um, the times that they would come right before there was like a jump scare or something actually uh, deflated the moment Mm. because I'm jumping at that rather than the face in the window or something like that. Yeah, I could see that. Um, I found they really like upped my anxiety, which then like primed me for, for screams. Um, I, I do realize, I think I'm in the minority on this. Um, especially like my wider opinion of liking this movie. Cause it seems like most reviews peg this movie as boring um, of just like, oh, it's just people sitting around and talking to each other, um, and describe the image flashing as like annoying, like intrusive. I would say, yes, it's intrusive, but it's also supposed to be with this super liminal version. Um, and I think that's what they're going for. So I'm not going to critique it. Cause like it is successfully causing me to feel uneasy because it feels so intrusive. Uh, I just, found it also would end up taking away like I said deflating what the film is is doing on screen uh I will say I also agree with you that uh it would have been really cool if those images had been tied to the plot because that subliminal message and the idea of repressed memory as a plot element was a really cool connection here and that's probably why the producer thought of this subliminal messaging thing in relation to this story. Yeah. There's a lot of scenes I actually really liked here. Um, honestly, I think the movie starts really strong. I really liked the opening dream yeah. that starts the movie. It's really unnerving. It's this kind of like first person floating camera uh, that has like a very dream effect. There's this like narration that she's giving over it. And then the like, you know, little jump images throughout that are making you go like what's going on um and then yeah she like looks in the attic and screams and the movie does a really good job of like replicating the shots from the dream in several places in the movie to help you feel like that sense of danger again um you know my world dies screaming metaphorically to me seems to signify the idea of like i have this dream that you know i'm in this place 
and I can't get to the end of it because I know I'm going to die at the end. And instead I just like wake up screaming. Um, whereas terror in the haunted house, it's like, yeah, a bunch of terror happens in a house that is like haunted by the memories of its past. Uh, so, you know, just more like metaphorical. I will say that with the opening of like the house and the narration, I was like, Oh, I see. We're doing a Rebecca. Yeah, very Rebecca, very uh, gaslight. Yeah, and so then we get to the the husband and like him taking her back and like her having like questionable sanity. And you and I were both like, "Oh, this is just gaslight. This is just gaslight." Yeah, and the way that the film opens as well reminded me of those confessional mm. style movies. Like it reminded me of when we watched i walked with a zombie because it sure. starts off with narration of like i walked with a zombie yeah yeah Funny yeah to say that blah 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 and you know we open with this narration of her kind of confessing uh or rather sharing this like intimate story of uh her her weird dream but then you know as the movie goes on it becomes sort of gaslight plus the screaming skull yeah and then it keeps going and there's just enough at least for me there's just enough new, unique twists to keep it interesting where, like, I got invested in the mystery, despite the fact that I was really dismissive of this movie when it started. Like, when we started watching it, I was like, ugh. Despite myself, like, trying to piece together the puzzle of, like, who's related to who and what really happened and what's going on actually got me really invested um, because it got really weird and convoluted in a way that, like, you know, Gaslight and Screaming Skull don't quite get like that convoluted. Um, so I found this to be on the boring side because it just felt meandering and going in narrative cul-de-sacs, um, particularly after Jonah dies and we're only left with three remaining characters in this entire cast. And it's just a question of like, one person needs to drive down to the police, but we can't have all of us going down, but we can't leave... We can't leave Sheila alone. Yeah, it turns into like one of those math problems. Yeah, and it was just like, do we not have phones? Like, what? just but, leave. Like, I don't understand why. Like, I understand, but it, I understand why they're doing it. Yeah. But it was just like, so first, Philip goes, but he parks on the side of the road and like hoofs it back on foot and then hides the body for no reason. And then it's like, oh, Mark, maybe Jonah was alive. Maybe you should go for the police. But wait, that's right. I disabled your car. I guess I will fix your car so you can drive away. He drives away, but not before uh, Mark works out with Sheila that like, don't worry, I'll park by the barn and hoof it back here on foot. And it's just like, just, yeah, just confront each other. Like, yeah. what, what? Just we're just wasting minutes. Totally. I, and I it's get not there's no tension. There's it's just like, why are we doing this? Like, I, I don't care about Mark. I don't care about Philip. They're both guilty as far as I'm concerned, because no one's fucking talking to each other. There's a thing about Gothic because this film is absolutely trying to. Yes. Riff off of Gothic. Um, there's a thing about when you're doing Gothic that works up to a point before it just like people just kind of throw up their hands and go, I guess. <laughs> um, 
And this movie leans way too far into uh, the convolutedness, um, not having enough of like a supernatural spookiness to it. And it doesn't have the aesthetic that I kind of want from Gothic mm. as well. Uh, I, mean, they I probably... think it had a really good opportunity to do Southern Gothic yes. in Florida, um, but they they didn't do it enough. Like Son of Dracula is more Southern Gothic than this movie. I really like the, so I see what you're saying yes. and I, I see where you're coming from. Um, definitely the game of like, who do we leave Sheila alone in the house with for this little stretch of time gets a bit old after a while. And Sheila, of course, has to be one of these female characters who is like too impressionable and too weak willed to really do anything so that she doesn't just be like, no, wait a minute, sit the fuck down and tell me what's going on. Uh, you, you don't get to leave this room until you explain this to me, right? Um, instead, people keep getting to, like, give her half answers and kind of string her along. And, and yeah, there's a lot of, like, weak justifications for things. Um, it's also definitely one of those movies where once you know the answers to the mystery, there's some stuff that, like, retrospectively is like, why did you act that way? Why did you do that? Um, because they're trying to keep you on your toes, especially because they mostly want you to think that Philip's the bad guy. And there are moments where Philip seems like he's the good guy or more rational. And we have Mark sort of explaining like, yeah, that's cause he's mad. So he does love you and he is trying to help you, but he can't help the fact that he's also trying to kill you. And so we're supposed to sort of explain away those inconsistencies that way. But it turns out that Philip was fine the whole time and Mark's the one who's insane. Yeah, it, it works, but it doesn't work as well as it could because it definitely is one of those movies that doesn't like, all the bits don't really connect once you know it. It's it's one of those movies that's helped by the fact that it's from an era when you couldn't easily rewatch a movie. Yeah. And like when the movie started, I was really giving it the benefit of a doubt because like it was really trying to do uh, this gothic thing with that dream sequence. When you first look up into the attic, there's like this um, drape blowing that almost looked like a woman being hanged yeah in like a nightgown or something yeah or that it was like a, a spirit or ghost or something so i was like oh sweet and then we get to the house and i'm like oh interesting and here's the weird caretaker and like okay interesting awesome and then halfway through mark gets introduced and it's just like okay and it just kept doing narrative cul-de-sacs even once Mark arrived and like after Mark arrives, Jonah dies. Like there, it didn't feel like it was ramping up enough. It was just kind of like, Oh yeah, we'll throw this piece of spaghetti to the wall. And then this piece of spaghetti. Right. You felt it was kind of spinning its wheels. Yes. I do want to say, um, I think the camera work and the score did a really good job in this movie of creating a disturbing mood. Um, there could have been better visuals in this movie. Um, I chalk that up to like time and money the day for night here is really inconsistent and mm -hmm. really bad at some points. Um, some scenes could have used more shadow, but for the most part, like I really liked the opening dream sequence and there were several other moments in the movie I thought were really effective. A lot of the times, like the way the camera moves through the house with Sheila is in this really like off putting kind of way where like there are things off camera that we can't see, but she can see. Um, I really like the layout of the house for like a Gothic yeah, I would agree with that. movie house. Um, I think they do a really good job of like making sure you understand the geography of the house. 
and yeah, and I think the score, um, the score is a little over the top sometimes with the romance stuff, but I think yeah. in the horror scenes, it actually worked really well because they were going for like a lot of discordancies, which helped again with like putting my anxiety up. I do think the performance of William Ching as Mark doesn't quite work. And I think contributes to that feeling you have of like the mood getting killed. He's so cardboard. I think what he's trying to do is make Mark seem really normal so that the reveal that he's the crazy one is, you know, this big surprise. And to contrast against like Sheila's hysterics and like Philip's weirdness. But the problem is, is yes, you're entirely right in his attempt to be like, hello, I am normal man. He just sort of goes over into wooden yeah, he needed to be more Joseph Cotton than David Manners. Sure. The person, honestly, he reminded me the most of was like if you took um, Robert Graves, who went on to narrate biography eventually later in life, <laughs> and like Adam West, and you kind of like mix them together. It's like that kind of like, hello, I am Hank Normalman. Um <laughs> I will say that there's kind of a problem down the line with the cast in this regard, which makes me suspect it might even be the director's fault because Mark is like too normal to be normal. And then like Sheila is a bit too delicate and innocent. Like there isn't um, enough of an arc for her in terms of where to go with her character Mm -hmm. in the whole, like we're going to drive Sheila insane thing, even though that turns out not to be anyone's goal. Even though, like, as I said, if I was her and, like, we pulled up to a house that I'd only ever seen in my dreams, I would freak the fuck out. But she needs, like, a somewhere to go. And she's a bit too, you one know, note. one note. And same, like, Philip. Philip, we need to be unsure whether to trust him or not. But, like, Gerald Moore's performance makes Philip just, like, a little bit too slimy to the point where even when he's being, like, quote, unquote, the good guy, we're still, like, yeah. I don't know, Philip. And similarly with Jonah, I think the actor who plays Jonah does a really good job of making him creepy and off-putting, but he's almost like too creepy and off-putting to the point where you're like, why would anyone like put up with you for any stretch of time? Um, You know, why would anyone like once Philip's like, oh, I think Jonah took our distributor cap, which the movie itself points out doesn't make sense because Jonah seems to be trying to scare them away, not keep them here. Um, but of course it's, you know, Philip regardless, like, it's weird that, you know, it's not like, Hey, you weird caretaker, dude, get the fuck out of here. Like the way people act around each other isn't quite believable. Yeah. As far as acting goes, everyone is fairly fine. I will say Kathy O'Donnell has a great scream. Yes. Yes. She really does. She Um, really sells those moments. Yeah. I think that, um, like a lot of these kinds of movies, the ending is probably the point where things like fall down the most. Cause it's certainly one of those movies where whether all of the, like you, you're calling them narrative cul-de-sacs, but whether like all the various ins and outs and weird unexplained loose ends, whether you let them go and be like, yeah, that's fine. Or whether they bother you, I think really comes down to like, does the ending you know, make up for it, right? Do they stick the landing? And I think the fight between Mark and Philip, where they're kind of like fighting over the axe, um, sucks. Yeah. It's just like a 
fisticuffs fight that feels like it's kind of not right for the ending of a horror movie. I really wish Sheila had been allowed to shoot Mark um, instead of just sort of standing there because she's got the gun. And it's this whole thing of like Chekhov's gun. Like she's had this gun for most of the movie. And even at one point in the climax, um, when they know that Mark's coming up the stairs to the attic, Philip's like, Sheila, where's the gun? You still have the gun, right? And she's like, oh, I don't know. I must have lost in the excitement. And then she finds it during the fight between Philip and Mark. And you're like, okay, cool. Sheila's going to get to shoot the guy. And she doesn't get to. And I feel like that's like some sort of weird like code holdover thing where it's like, oh, well, if she commits murder, then she has to be punished. Whereas Mark falling back on the point of the axe all by himself, like means that no one's at fault here. Right. But if she had gotten to shoot him, it would have, you know, meant that she had an actualized character arc of like resolving her trauma by like committing an actual <laughs> by shooting a gun, <laughs> right. Uh, by committing an action, right. By yeah. doing a thing. Um, so I think that's a little bit weak to me. And I completely agree with what you're saying. Um, especially on the fact that Philip, even when he's supposed to be our good guy is still like, you're not too sure mm. because I'll, at the end when they're like, well, then why did he kill Jonah? If that was his dad. And like, why any of this? Philip is the one that's like, well, I think it was this. And it's like, yeah, but is that the truth? Are, or are you, you a just trust... continuing to lie? Yeah, yeah. He's he's made himself into an untrustworthy narrator at that point. Exactly. So it's like, are we are we okay? I, I think that so of all the revelations, I really liked what this movie was doing. Again, I think it was going for that Southern Gothic thing of like the convoluted family history and like, Ooh, who killed who and how is everyone related? Um, Jonah being Mark's father just doesn't work in retrospect. It's it, so weird. Cause it's like none of the way that Mark talks to Jonah signals that at all. And unlike Philip, Mark doesn't have a reason to keep that secret. Right. And even though Mark is the legal person who inherited the house because Jonah can't inherit because he married in, it's still weird that then the result of all of that murder and like, oh, I'm going to get the estate and I've planned this whole thing to get wealth for my boy is that like Mark lives somewhere totally else. The house is completely deserted and abandoned and he left his dad there with like the caretaker job. Yeah. That he still had when he the family was alive and now like 17 years later jonah's all like i i keep it good and, and in good condition for when the tyrannies come back and it's like clear that he's you know lost it yeah mad but it's not like a madness that is consistent with the revelations we get later i honestly think the ending would have been way scarier and much more effective um because i do think it's a great moment when like normal like hello i am mark comes into the attic and he's got the axe and he's all like, I'm never going to let you take it from me, Philip. Like that's really effective. That shift. Everything I think would have been a lot better if in the revelations we learned that because we know that the, um, Sheila was seven and Philip's a little older than Sheila and Mark's a little older than Philip. I think it would have been a lot better if teen Mark had been the killer 
Yeah. Not his father with this like caveat of like, oh yeah, I knew dad was going to go kill those people and I didn't stop him. Like it would have been way more disturbing to imagine this teen boy doing it. It would have explained like why did Jonah's mind snap? Because it's like, oh, turns out your son is a psycho killer and that's like going to break your mind. And like, you know, it would have made Sheila's trauma more um significant it would have especially because mark was someone who she thought she could trust as well right and it would have you know meant that like philip's mistrust and hatred of mark would have been like even more so because it's like oh i think you're the guy who did it and then it would have made the ending where he's the one threatening them scarier because we know he's already capable of murder um so i I wish that the ending had been handled better because i think if it had been the little things that bugged you throughout, you know, would have been more forgivable. Absolutely. Yeah. The bottom of the movie kind of fell out for me uh, when Jonah gets killed. Cause it's like, well then why? <laughs> right. It, it, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very much like a, um, well, he was the bad guy. It's vanquished. Why are we still here and right. deciding who gets to drive down to the police station? Yeah. Like you kill Jonah and like 20 minutes later, or, you know, whatever. It's like, oh, actually, he was the killer. And it's like, well, then why did you sort of so unceremoniously off him yeah. earlier? And, like, no one's asking the question of, like, who pushed Jonah? It's all a question of, like, who's going to the police station? Right. And it's like, no it, one is specifically calling out, like, he was murdered. Especially because, um, and I will say, like, there's some good horror movie moments in this movie. Um, and the movie does, like, go to some disturbing places like we see Jonah fall off the railing and he doesn't like it's not like oh look the carpet's misaligned down there maybe (laughs) oh no I've fallen it's like he gets (laughs) fucking tossed like we see this shot um and I think the movie does a really good job sometimes with like keeping us limited to Sheila's POV and I would agree with that this is an example of that she opens the door to the bedroom and looks out and all we see is just like Jonah come from like one end of the screen, topple over the railing and go and fall down. And I was like, whoa, what the fuck? And then they go to the bottom of the stairs and his neck's broken. It's like he didn't fall. He was definitely like thrown. Um, So, yeah, you're totally right. That all comes across really weird in retrospect once we know that he was the bad guy. Like that just doesn't work. The bad guy needed to be Mark the whole time. Yeah. Like I said, I didn't uh, particularly enjoy this movie. It felt like it fumbled, um, especially in like the gothic sense. Um, personally, I would still describe this as gothic, but possibly not horror. Uh, it's definitely like mystery. Um, but for me, it felt like there wasn't enough tension. I think it would have been better if it was shorter, like a, a 45 minute Twilight Zone or something like that, um, because then we wouldn't have as many roundabouts and the it would have been able to manage the tension more. Yeah. This would be like a good Alfred Hitchcock presents. Absolutely. Um, I think this is horror um, because I think that's definitely what they're going for. The fact that they put in a bunch of like devil monster faces being like scream um, clearly shows that they were like aiming for horror. Die louder. Right. Um, (laughs) I just think that like the ending doesn't get there. I feel like this movie would be better if it was made like five years later. Sure. You know, when you're in like the 60s and... Because I would be 63, so Psycho would have come out. Yeah, and like the production code will have weakened even more by then and and things like that. 
But I do think it's horror. I think it doesn't reach the heights of horror it wants to because it slips and makes these mistakes throughout. Yeah. But I was at least happy that it didn't turn out to just be gaslight, which is how it feels for the first like 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, it was a little frustrating. And, um, you know, it's also very blatant about being like gaslight. Yes. Which looking back, it's like, yeah, because they want Philip to look like he's the bad guy. Exactly. Like that's almost like the twist. Like they know that you've seen gaslight. Right. (laughs) Um, And it's also very similar to the screaming skull, which is another like Rebecca gaslight. But the but and also a movie that I liked more than like its reputation seemed to suggest that I would. Um, I think part of my good response to this movie is I just really responded well to like the old house and the like convoluted family history and the kind of like anxiety inducing aspects of this Mm -hmm. movie. Um, I definitely appreciated that they were taking this from Sheila's point of view. mm -hmm. They weren't like, oh, what else is going on? It's like, no, we know that the horror is in her repressed memory. So let's really engage with that. Yeah. So I think this was horror, um, but I can tell we're going to have a really hard time with ranking here. So you were kind of doubting whether this was horror or not. Did you have a range? No. Okay. But I will say, um, so the two movies that stood out to me to compare this to is um, The Screaming Skull, which you've already pointed out, which is at number 51. And then the other is invisible ghost okay yeah the little ghosty movie where his wife's outside in the rain all the time yeah that is ranked at number 115 okay so my range is going to be way too high for you so we're going to need to figure something out okay um so i thought screaming skull was better than this um mostly because screaming skull like turns out to actually have actual supernatural shit going on and it has that screaming skulls right and it has that whole thing where like you think that he's choked her to death at the end of the movie like yeah yeah. so i liked screaming skull better um right below screaming skull is black cat mansion which is also kind of like a weird goofy movie um so you know for me the things i was trying to reconcile here was the fact that this movie has cheapness problems and this movie has like scripting problems but as a horror movie i found it was actually really effective at like getting under my skin uh which is like a really important attribute of horror movie um so my range ended up going from 52 down to 67 which is below dementia but above the abominable snowman that's clearly way too high with the fact that you didn't even think this movie should rank But The Invisible Ghost is down at 115. Around that is stuff like White Zombie, Hands of Orlax, Strangler of the Swamp, uh, as well as the Trollenberg Terror. Mm. Yeah, I feel like looking down in the area of Invisible Ghost makes a lot more sense for me. There are, I think, like comparable movies here like Strangler of the Swamp, um, Dr. Minolt's Secret is a little higher here at 112. Um, the halfway point between um, Invisible Ghost and the bottom of your range is uh, number 94, The Amazing Mr. X. Mm, which also had Kathy O'Donnell in it. Yes. Yes, it did. Um, I think she's better in that because she has a place to go with her character. Sure. 
Yeah. What do you think about in this area in like the mid nineties to the, the mid one tens? I'll make you a counter offer. Yep. Um, which is actually much lower. Okay. Um, just acknowledging that like this movie has problems and also that like I couldn't find a single positive review of this movie. <laughs> like everyone's reviews were like, this is boring garbage and annoying and stupid. And I was like, I really liked this guys. So I have to kind of like correct for maybe like me being a weird statistical outlier here. Um, but at number 128, we have murders in the room morgue mm. and that's right above 129 zombies of mora tau and then we get into like dracula's daughter the mummy's tomb the haunted strangler invaders from mars vampires ghost like movies that are fun but not good and sometimes have a challenge operating as movies right and so i feel like putting this below murders in the room morgue which has tone problems because it only has two tones and those tones are comedy or disturbing and then above stuff like Zombies of Mora Tau or Dracula's Daughter, where it's like, eh, you guys didn't really cook this one long enough. You know, um, that feels right to me. So that would put this at number 129. Yeah, I would agree that that feels right, because um, My World Dies Screaming definitely was cooked long enough. It might be a little overcooked even. Uh, and the way everything kind of came together on the plate just didn't quite work for me. Yeah. It, it doesn't have enough, um, like body to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. If you want to go with that, I'm good with that. So entering the list at the new number 129 is my world dies screaming, AKA terror in the haunted house from 1958 directed by Harold Daniels. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. You can help us out by leaving us a rating or a review. You can tell a friend about us online or in reality to help grow the show's audience through word of mouth. If you'd like to help us out financially, um, enabling us to, you know, do our hosting fees and take the time out to do all of the work necessary to put this show together, we would really appreciate it if you headed on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the five and $10 level get access to regular bonus content and patrons of all levels get to vote in our monthly polls to determine our horror adjacent bonus episode. As Sarah mentioned at the top of the show. So that's patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, on this episode, Sarah, you mentioned Son of Dracula as an example of Southern Gothic. I mentioned Dracula's Daughter as a movie just a few spots below where we just ranked this one. We also know that there's a movie called Son of Frankenstein. So we must, of course, complete our set with next week's movie, Frankenstein's Daughter. Okay. Uh, is this a hammer? No. Okay. This is, this is um, I think, AIP, but it's definitely some indie, you know, outside the system kind of stuff. Okay, okay. Cool. Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.